Angel, it's Easter Sunday. I realize that some of you may already have been in Expressions of Church over this weekend with friends and family. Maybe you've had the bank weekend or the bank holiday weekend off and you've already been at a church service today. Uh, this is a special time in the church calendar. Um, we've, been following, uh, we've been following a theme called Seasons, which unsurprisingly has been following the Christian seasons throughout all of this year. And we've been dipping in and out at various stages to do some of our own content, but by and large we've been following the seasons as they've fallen, and this season is now Easter, as I'm sure you're aware. And so today we're reading a slightly different reading than maybe we sometimes do on Easter Sunday. We're reading today from Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If you've got a Bible on you, either a paper Bible or one on your phone, why don't you pull it out? Otherwise, it will appear on the screen behind me. I'll read for you. Let's read God's word together. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. It's Easter Sunday, as I said, and that means that we're gathering today in one of the great Christian festivals in the Christian calendar, right? So as I explained, we were going through the, the, the seasons of the church calendar, okay? Maybe you know them all, maybe you don't, but the seasons that lead us to date are Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, and now Easter. Actually, Easter has several in one, but we're not going to complicate things, right? We're now in Easter, all right? And obviously, as we walk through the calendar, we tend toward, okay, as a culture, as the church, we tend toward speaking about some of them a lot more than we tend to speak about others, don't we? So Christmas, for example, is a front page grabber, whereas Epiphany tends to be like page 23, right? We kind of skip over that one uh, whenever we go to some of the other Christian festivals in the year. But Easter, right? Easter is probably our most celebrated. Easter is probably our most celebrated in the church, isn't it? I have uh, an, an older friend, and he tells me, oh, it's the only one they haven't polluted yet, is what he tells me whenever he talks about Easter, right? Christmas, oh, they've even taken the Christ out of Christmas, and all this sort of stuff. But when it comes to, to Easter, it's the one they haven't polluted yet, okay? The incredible story of how sin and death are shattered by the power of Jesus on the cross, and then just a few days later, he's raised to life again. This is hope. This is love. This is glory. This is the moment that the whole course of human history changes forever, right? That's what we believe when it comes to the Easter story. But this moment is also not without its challenges. Before uh, I kind of lost my way in life and gave in to the sweet embrace of Lycra and road cycling, I used to mountain bike, right? I used to mountain bike before that. I used to ride and race mountain bikes, and I used to love it, right? But I was out with some friends one night. We, we live quite close to the Cave Hill, and we used to ride our bikes in the Cave Hill all the time. And it was one of those evenings a bit like this. The kind of sun was shining, and we were having a great time. And then it rained, right? It was one of those little brief showers, you know, like a cloud, that, that like phantom cloud that passes over bringing rain everywhere where it goes. It was like one of those ones. The cloud passed over. Everywhere it got soaked. But it was still like hot, you know. And so we were, we were kind of doing laps. There was a race coming up. We were kind of pushing each other. What happens in mountain biking is you get into a train. And the, you know you cannot stop because someone is coming very fast behind you, right? So we're doing laps of a particular track in the Cave Hill. And at one point, I was, I was the first person. There were two guys behind me. And we were kind of, it was getting faster and faster and faster as the evening went on. 
And I was coming down, it had just rained, it had been dry. Uh, and just as I came down, I did, I mean, it wasn't the cleverest moment of my whole life. Essentially, I hit a tree at about 25 miles an hour, right? I, I kind of lost control on a tree root, kind of went sideways, went like wham, right into a tree. I kind of ended up going into it like in my side, like in, in, in about there. It was the worst winding I've ever had. You know, if you've ever seen somebody get really winded and they're like, like that sort of thing. That's how I felt, right? So I'm like on the ground, really wheezing. I think I might die. I didn't die. I was then helped, you know, did that like broken man thing. I'm fine. Down the hill, right? All the way down to the car. And my brother, as it happened, took me to hospital. Um, thankfully, you know, I arrived in hospital as a broken man, like blood in my way, all that sort of stuff, that nasty stuff. Didn't feel particularly well. And after lots of x-rays and tests and all of that sort of stuff, the docs let me out that night as they told me that I hadn't broken anything, which was incredible. Really, I just had that really awful, deep, deep bruising. You know, the sort that like sits on your belt. It like pulls, right? It was like, it was grim, right? I felt awful for days afterwards, right? But in my lower back, okay, things never really felt right again. But never really felt like my back. I kind of felt like I had somebody else's back attached to my back. It didn't feel the same. And it never has since then. Over the next couple of months through seeing, like, first my GP, and then they sent me to the hospital, and then from the hospital I got sent to a specialist unit, and then from them to another unit, to another unit. Eventually, uh, somebody who really understood what was going on began to tell me what was happening with my back. And they explained at the time that what had happened was I'd received an impact somewhat akin to if you'd been in a road accident or something like that. And what had happened was the nerves in my back had been essentially mashed Like the impact had been so hard in one area, it had like mashed all the nerves and they had become frayed. A bit like if you took a bit of string out of your pocket, put it on a table and whacked it with a hammer, you know, it like flattens out and they're still sort of connected, but kind of disconnected. Uh, And it was, it was smashed. And the bad news was that there was nothing really that they could do about it. And it was probably going to be like that forever. The result of that happening was I experienced two things in my, in my lower back, okay, or down in the bottom of my back. Most of the time, I feel nothing. It's completely and utterly numb, like you could, you could poke something in my back and I wouldn't know that it had happened. And then at other times, strangely, out of nowhere, it's like I feel too much. Like my little sister one day came to ask me a question, poked me in the back with her finger, and I honestly thought she just stuck like a red hot knife in the middle of my back, right? She just came and said, Dave, and I was like, ah, like fell over. It was really sore. Sometimes I feel too much, but most of the time I just feel nothing. And I tell you this because I think sometimes we can come at this day, we can come at this part of the Christian story and feel a similar set of feelings. Like it's easy to come to the cross the world's most recognizable symbol. And if we're not careful, sometimes just let it wash over us, can't we? We've seen it so many times. And on this particular weekend, your kind of Twitter feeds and stuff will be full about stuff around Easter. And you come at it and it can just like wash over you. It's Easter again. And you don't really even stop to think about it. You can feel numb. Sometimes our relationship with God goes like that, doesn't it? Like, we don't feel the way we did the day we give our lives to Jesus. It's been a while since we felt anything at all. It's been a while since we might have heard his voice or felt him stir in our lives. None. But Easter can also feel like this sudden spike, like a short, sharp shock, can't it? Just enough to jolt us back, almost like a dopamine hit of Christianity. Kind of just enough, a top up, just enough to jolt us back in to some semblance of a relationship with Jesus. Enough to keep us going for a little while. Sometimes it's numb. And sometimes it's almost too much. 
Yet Paul, speaking to the church in Colossae, urges them to do something more than numbness, urges them to do something more than just a short, sharp shock, more than just a festival. He's calling them back to a relationship with the one whose cross we gather around today. He wants more than just a moment. He wants more than numbness. He wants a real living relationship with the one whose cross we come before today. You see, from the start of the letter to the Colossians, Paul has been speaking into a people that have become syncretistic. Syncretistic means they've begun to absorb beliefs from the area they were in, philosophies and theories and, and kind of th- narratives that were going on in the culture at the time, right? They started to absorb those into their Christian faith. And then, you know, they kind of bolted them on to what they thought they knew about Jesus. And it all became like a, a faith in and of itself, but it wasn't a Christian faith. They'd begun to adopt their own beliefs into their own faith, and it didn't look like a faith in Jesus. So what does Paul do? Well, the first thing he does, which we're not reading today, is in the first couple of chapters, he gives a really hugely impassioned, complete, strong account for Jesus, right? The very foundations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, for example, right, just listen to these five verses in chapter one, right? It says this, chapter one, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Wow. It's one of those, like, complete big statements of faith, isn't it? It's incredible. I once went for prayer at the Healing on the Streets guys in Coleraine, and the guy, he sat me down and said, can you explain to me what's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I have a sore knee. And he said, right, well, I'd love to pray for you. And he started, and he prayed kind of like that. He was like, Jesus, the Son of God, you, you died, and then you rose again on the third day, and all things belong to you. And I went on and on and on. And at the end, I was like, well, that prayer is definitely getting answered, right? It was so complete, right? And in a way, Paul does exactly that. He's covering everything. It's an exposition of our faith. Why is he doing that? Well, Paul does it in a number of the epistles, and what he does is he constructs his arguments by writing to the various churches and making the case for what it means to believe in the faith that these mostly Gentile, outsider people, unschooled believers had found before teaching into what it means to live out that faith. In other words, he speaks into life with Jesus before life for Jesus. He's just spoken about what it means to live a life with Jesus before he tells them what it might mean to live for him. So Paul has just given the most stunning case for faith, and now in chapter 3 he turns to call the Colossian church to live for Jesus, live in the new life they've found, the raised life they've received. You know, we gather this Easter Sunday around a cross that really does mean hope. We gather around a cross that really does mean love, that really does change the course of human history forever. But if we're ever going to live as those changed by it, then Paul encourages us to take hold of a number of things. And we're just going to touch on them today. And the first is this. It's that resurrected life means living the dead life. Resurrected life means living the dead life. That's what he says. 
And we've been getting door-to-door visits recently. I don't know about you, where you are, but with the local kind of elections coming up, we've been getting door-to-door visits. And the thing that I've noticed is that it doesn't matter who comes, right, to your door, where at whichever party they kind of ascribe to. What I've noticed is that they tend to do exactly the same thing when they arrive, right? They immediately make a statement that they know that everyone is going to agree with before delivering the things they want to say, right? So just about every single one of them has arrived at the door. You've answered it, hello. They said, well... Brexit's a disaster then. And it's like they've all said it. So that Brexit, eh? It's like the same thing again and again and again. And what happens is you go, yep, it's a total mess, isn't it, right? And then if they're like the DUP or Sinn Féin, they're like, well then, are you going to give your vote to somebody that can do something about it? Or if they're like Alliance, they're like, those folks in the hell, they don't know what they're doing. You want change, don't you? And it's like they start with the same statement. You agree with them. And then they hit you with the stuff they want to say, don't they? And Paul does something similar in Colossians chapter 3. He leads with a statement that he knows the church in Colossae can get on board with. So in verse 1 it says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The first half of this sentence would have been met with nods and approval, right? An agreement, like I'm sure lots of you agree today. Since then you have been raised with Christ. They, they agree with it. They're like, yes, yes, I agree. We know that we're dead. We know that we're now raised to life. We know it. The challenge, however, is to walk it out in our lives beyond believing that it's just true. Isn't it? The challenge is walking it out beyond just believing that it's true. Shortly after Joy and I got married, we were leading worship in church one Sunday, and throughout the service, I became aware of one guy who was in the congregation who I knew kind of wasn't normally someone who was particularly demonstrative when it came to worship, right? He was one of those like hands in pockets, never remove your hands from pockets type people. But what I noticed was in this particular Sunday, he was like massively demonstrative about worship, like he was going for it, right? He was really on board. And I'm like leading thinking, wow, something like something amazing must be happening in this guy's life. Like this is a huge huge change from how I normally see him on a Sunday. So it gets to the end of the service and we're like milling around at the front and this guy comes bombing it up to the front, right? And we're like just talking to some people and he butts in and he's like, I can't believe you're here. And I'm kind of looking at him going, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 we're here. And he goes on, he's like, I mean, it's just, it's just astonishing, right? Like I was there watching the whole time, glued, just totally glued to what your hand was doing. And it's working perfectly. And I mean, it's just amazing. There's no problems at all. It's an actual miracle, right? At this point, you know, you begin to have those moments with people that you kind of look at them and you have absolutely no idea what's going on, right? You have two choices in these moments. You either think, well, I can kind of go along with what he's saying and then just hope that I can make a swift exit from this conversation whenever it's first convenient. Or your second option is to like go against, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, but at this stage, I kind of thought this guy might be mental. So I was a wee bit like, uh, exit seems, I'm not sure about this. So I eventually, you know, I worked out the guts and I was like, like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? I'm just like, I'm really sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. And he looks at me and, and he says, I'm, I'm talking about your finger. And I'm like, right, why would we be talking about my finger right now? And he's like, right, 
Um, okay. And he was on to explain, essentially, that one of his friends plays football on a Tuesday night. I played football on a Tuesday night. And basically, he heard from one of his friends that this guy, Dicko, that he heard about, had, like, a ball had got kicked over the 3G pitches at the Valley. And I had, a guy called Dicko had went over to get it. And as he was jumping over the fence, this guy, who was also newly married as we were, his wedding ring had got stuck under the part of the fence, and it had pulled his finger off, right? And he, he's like, he's heard this as this guy, Dicko, right? And he is like, he, he then goes on to explain, like, and he, he's like, I mean, I've just been praying and praying all week that Jesus would save your finger. Because, like, I know you lead worship and you really need that finger. And I mean, and then I'm here today and you're, like, playing guitar and your hand is, like, perfect. And I'm like, Jesus, you have worked a miracle. It wasn't me. My finger has never been unattached from my body, right? And I'm like looking at him, and he's like preaching the gospel to me about this miracle that's happened. And eventually, you know, at this point, you're stuck with the same thing again. Do I either like own the miracle, in which case I'm like, you know, the miracle guy, or you're like, you're crazy. It wasn't me. I'm really sorry. I, I basically, I, I have to be honest, and I'm like, listen, that, that's, that wasn't me. Like, it must be some other guy called Deco. But it felt like every time I tried to tell him it wasn't me, he'd like go, yeah. And then he'd go, but it's amazing, isn't it? And I'm like, no, it didn't happen. And he's like, he's like, yeah, oh, it's really funny. But it's amazing your fingers work. And this like went on and on until I just had to leave. I was like, oh, well, nice to see you. And he's like still on cloud nine for about like two, but he might, I mean, he might still be on cloud nine now. I don't know. Anyway, the problem is, right, Sometimes it's easier to believe the story than the truth, isn't it? There's times in life when it's easier to believe the story than it is to believe the truth. And if we're not careful, our lives so easily fall into patterns that believe the story that we tell ourselves. The story about ourselves that says that our sin, the stuff in our lives, the stuff that's there, the stuff that's broken, the stuff that's niggling, the stuff that shouldn't be there, that We tell ourselves that it isn't really dealt with when the truth is uh, about it all is what Paul says. You are raised. The truth is that that stuff is dead. That stuff is really dead. It really did happen. You know, the devil would love us to believe that our sin, our particular sin, whatever that looks like for you, somehow managed to slip past the cross and never got dealt with. He would love you to believe that somehow, like the cross, missed it, didn't see it, didn't stop it, couldn't do anything about it. He would love you to believe that. He would love you to believe that it never got put to death on that cross. He'd love us to do that because he'd love us to believe that it never got completely defeated. Because if we did, we'd try to hide it. We'd try to reason it away, wouldn't we? And we'd never believe that the cross has done enough to deal with it. Never believe that that raised life has done enough to deal with your stuff. But this cross, this death to life experience of Jesus that we experience with him has given us a new way to be human, right? Where we aren't just ruled and controlled by our own impulses and feelings and desires and wants. What it means is this. It means that we aren't just in a fight with all we have to be righteous with our living. It means living is not just a fight to be good, to be righteous. We are just trying to manifest on the outside what's already happened on the inside. This raised life means that we're just trying to manifest out there what's already happened in here. And to emphasize it, Paul says again in verse 3, For you died, you really died, you really raised. 
And the challenge is to let it go from your head understanding to manifesting it with your life. Paul is challenging them to say, it really happened, now live it out. Live it out. And as we come to the cross at Easter time, for those who are in the way of Jesus, who are trying to follow Jesus, it's not enough to just see the cross and feel like we can identify it. We participate in it too. We don't just see it from afar and go, that's the cross. All right, I kind of see that every so often. I see that once a year. Oh, they, they may even have pulled out a wooden cross. We have one in the basement. Shame on us for not wheeling it out, right? We have one there. You wheel it out once a year and you look at the cross and you're like, oh yeah, it's not enough to just identify it. With, we participate in it, we're believing our old life is really dead so that we live like we're really raised. The challenge of Easter is to believe that the old life is really dead so that we live like we're really raised. Remember what we were saying a couple of weeks ago about Lazarus, that only things that really die really get resurrected. The only things that get a raised life are things that really die. Otherwise, they're like my finger, right? It never got separated from my body. It never died. So it wasn't a miracle that it was working again on a Sunday. It's a fake. And we can't live a new life until we believe that we're a new person. So we're called to live the dead life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged for his alleged part in an assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler 74 years ago, just about a week ago or so. 74 years ago, he was hanged. I've been reading his book, The Cost of Discipleship, recently, and this is what he writes when it comes to the dead life. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery to go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. When Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. And we gather today on Resurrection Day as a people longing to live a life raised with him. He is risen. He is risen is the thing that will be sung and said and tweeted out countless times on this Resurrection Sunday, up and down this country and all over the world. But if we are to believe that we are risen, then we need to live the dead life. If we're going to believe that we're risen and live like we're risen, then first we need to live the dead life. And Paul says that we lead it by doing two things. He says that we lead it in how we seek and in how we set. He says how how we live this dead life is, is, is worked out in how we seek and how we set. In September, the internet lit up because this guy, this magnificent specimen of a man, Mark Wahlberg, right? He posted his daily routine on the Instagram, right? I mean, just, just take this all in, guys. I mean, particular highlights are half an hour of golf between 7.30 and 8. I mean, what even is that, right? Mental. Cryo chamber recovery straight away. Snack. I mean, family time and with meeting and work calls for two hours between 11 and 1. Like, what planet does he live on? And he goes to bed at 7.30, right? Completely and utterly crazy. He also, by the way, in case you missed it, he has a shower that lasts for an hour and a half. Did you see that? 
6 to 7.30, a shower. I mean, I mean, he's making out like he's busy, but whenever I have a shower for an hour and a half, I'm not busy, right? That's the truth. And listen to this, it gets better. This is, this is what he says about his meals. I start out with steel oats, blueberries, and peanut butter for breakfast, he said. Then I have a protein shake, three turkey burgers, five pieces of sweet potato at about 5.30 in the morning. Three turkey burgers at 5.30 in the morning. Anyway, at 8 o'clock, I have 10 turkey meatballs. At 10.30, I have a grilled chicken salad with two hard-boiled eggs, olives, avocado, cucumber, tomato, and lettuce. Then, at 1 o'clock, I have a New York steak with green peppers. At 3.30, I have a grilled chicken with bok choy. At 5.36, I have a beautiful piece of halibut or cod or a sea bass with some vegetables, maybe some sauteed potatoes and bok choy. And I have a lot of aqua hydrate during the day. That's it. I mean, is aqua hydrate water? What is wrong with this guy? But he's like, easy. That's it, right? That's not it. It's mental, right? And the internet went mad. There was lots of parodies. You can kind of look them up and read them for yourselves. But when he was interviewed later, he reasoned it away by saying, I was training for my newest film, Mile 22. And as crazy as, let's be honest, nobody believed him about his routine anyway, right? But as crazy as it sounded, he was just trying to get in shape so his lifestyle reflected who he was trying to become. This is Mark Wahlberg's attempt to make his lifestyle reflect who he is trying to become. And Paul says exactly the same thing in this passage today, this time from the message, verses 1 and 2. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. You really died. You really raised with him. Therefore, seek Jesus' way in your life and set your minds on him. The NIV uses this phrase, set your hearts, which is probably better translated as to seek, or as the message says it, pursue. And this pursuit is about living a life of new priorities, right? It's about new priorities. As I was getting ready to leave uni with my 2-1, I was absolutely sure that what I was doing next with my life was that I was going to make lots of money. Now, I was very confident about this as I left. I'm thinking, I'm going to do all right with my life. I'm reasonably confident. I have my 2-1. going to be all right, right? That's what I thought I was going to be doing with my life. But you know what? As I began to hear God's call in my life and began to shift my priorities, I found over time that that died in me. It just died. It just went away. So much so that every so often when I sit down with somebody to do kind of some one-to-one stuff and I find that that is still the big priority of their life, I almost feel like completely repulsed by it. And it's not them, it's the fact that that used to be me. There's nothing wrong with earning lots of money, by the way. But I knew that that wasn't for me. And so I shifted my priorities. And what I found was it died. It died. And I don't want to do that anymore. I've got somewhere else to be, some new priority, something else to do with my life. Something else came to life when something died. And this only happens when we shift our priorities, right? Right? 
This is about getting to know this God whom we follow. And we do that by beginning to orientate our lives around the way that he calls us to live, right? We get to know somebody better when we orientate our lives around them. Imagine that. I mean, I find that out when I got married. Lots of people do. You think, oh, when we just get married and, you know, we move in together, it's going to be, it's going to be so much easier. We're going to be around each other all the time. And then you realize, like, oh, my goodness, we are so different. And you start to have to figure out that you've got to orientate your life around the other person if you really want to get to know them. And your Christian faith is exactly the same thing. You begin to orientate your life around the Jesus you're trying to follow. Our center of gravity is not religion or rites or rituals. It's not our past or very often the things that we want or the things that feel good. Neither is this some kind of mystical, weird, ethereal thing. Our center of gravity is Jesus And true freedom is found in submission to his way, not mine. True freedom is found when we seek his way, not mine. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, is what it says in Hebrews. This is about running my own race, his way. It's about running my race, his way. We seek new priorities and we set our eyes on new perspectives, right? It's not just about priorities. It's about perspectives. Verse 2 said this, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And we need to do this, right? Because our default setting, if we have one, is to walk around with our eyes down, isn't it? Our default setting is to walk around with our eyes down in our own stuff, whatever that is, jobs, relationships, friends, stuff, whatever it is. We walk around with our eyes down, obsessed with the life that we think we need. Or else we try to make our way through life thinking that if we only understood ourselves better, then we'd be happy. Wellness, psychology, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, all that sort of stuff. It's all good stuff. But the truth is, if, if our default setting is to live our lives purely by looking at our own compass, we're not going to get anywhere, are we? It's not going to satisfy us either because we need a new perspective in our lives. And Easter means we can have one when we learn to look up. Easter means we can learn to have a new perspective as we learn to look up. It turns out that the ground we stand on is most secure when our gaze is up, not when our eyes are down, when our eyes are up. Jesus is not the God we expect. Sure, he's not. Very often in life, we find out that the the God that we follow, that the relationship that we're trying to work with Jesus, that we're trying to invest in, that we're trying to learn, that we're trying to grow in, it turns out Jesus is not the God that we expect. But he is the one that we need. Jonathan Merritt, writing Christianity Today, reflecting on Palm Sunday, which was last Sunday, right? This is what he writes. The Palm Sunday story displays the transition from expectation to disappointment in technicolor. The triumph becomes a trial, and the trial becomes an execution. Jesus entered the city on a donkey, but we know he will leave in a body bag. This is not just a fun parade. Jesus is walking down death row. Here we have a picture of what happens to a group of very religious people when they feel disappointed by God. At the start, the crowds embrace Jesus with dopamine levels soaring and shouts of, save us now. And as soon as Jesus turns out to be something other than the Savior they expect, their hosannas morph into crucify him. Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind they wanted. 
He will serve rather than be served. He will die and not be killed. He enters unarmed, waging peace. This makes a larger point that God does not intend to meet our expectations. Instead, he meets our needs. This type of God makes me uncomfortable. I don't want vegetables when I'm craving candy. I want the God that satisfies my desires, whether or not those align with my needs. And so it is with all of us. We welcome God into our lives with anticipation, with expectation. We're laying down cloaks and we're waving palm branches with all we've got. But when God turns out to be someone we don't recognize, we scatter like smoke in the wind. Ultimately, the triumphal entry is not about donkeys and palm branches at all. It's a reminder that placing expectations on God based on our wants is a recipe for resentment. But nurturing openness to divine mystery is a framework for faith. When we go after a relationship with God based on the stuff we want, we want, we will only ever find ourselves disappointed. This is about the priorities we seek and the perspectives we set. We live the raised life by pursuing the dead life. We've got to shift our priorities and shift our perspectives. If ever we're going to live in this way, live a raised life, you know, just as we come to wrap this up today and, and to move into communion and to respond. I love how Paul finishes this last little section of his letter. I love how he finishes it. This is what he says. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And I love this, right? Because I imagine he would have been slowing down the pace a little bit here, right? Because after all, he has laid upon them great challenge, but now he reminds them that they are hidden. They're hidden. And so easily, you know, we look to Jesus to hope to find our flaws hidden, don't we? We look to Jesus to try and see if he'll hide the worst bits about ourselves, our failures hidden, the bits we don't like, the parts of our lives we're most ashamed of and we wish would just go away. We look to Jesus to hide those bits. But Jesus doesn't hide us in part. He hides us in full. He paid for us in full, and now he hides us in full, enveloped completely by Jesus and what he did on that cross. So I get to be a couple of things when I'm hidden. I get to be safe, hidden, safe in the truth that all of my past, all of me, is taken on by Jesus, safe in the truth that my life is now in the only pair of hands who can truly lead, truly transform, and truly hold me. I get to be hidden, safe, I get identity in a world that doesn't know who it is. Identity when in lots of ways on on many days, I don't know who I am. I am hidden in him. I belong. I belong here. I belong to him. And I get a future. And that future is unlike anything I've ever seen or I've ever known. A future where I am everything God says I am. Where the church in an instant is seen for what it is. Beautiful, flawless, perfect. The church Jesus prepared and longs for. And where all the world will see Jesus. The one in whom we're safe. The one in whom we belong. For who he is. Glorious. They'll see the cross today. But one day all the world will see triumph. Today they'll look on and see the cross and they may not understand. Lots of people don't. They look at it and they think, well, it's death. It's a symbol of a Roman form of execution. How can that possibly ever look like victory? But one day the world will look at it and will truly see it for what it is. 
says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. That's our future. Hidden now, but not always. And that's what the table that we come to today is about. The table that we come to is where we get to look at the past and we get to remember. Remember what Jesus did and how we once were dead, but now we live. All of our past dies with him and we remind ourselves and give thanks for that today. But also we come to our present in the reality that he is risen. This is not awake, right? So we seek new priorities. We set our minds on new perspectives right here at the table today. And we believe for and renew our hope in a future. For when in that blink of an eye, all will be revealed and the world will see us, the church and Jesus for who they really, truly are. And so we come today to that cross, to that resurrection, to that empty tomb. We come today to the table.